Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WRT possible. Hi, I'm Keith Steffen, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers. This week, we'll have a review of this year's Fantasy and Lights, learn about conditions for Kentucky workers hit by the recent tornado, take a look at negotiations between players and owners in Major League Baseball, explore highlights of the new contract for postal workers, share the latest COVID report, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Building trades workers employed by the University of Wisconsin have still not received the wage increase due to them in 2020 or 2021. Labor Radio has a story. Wages for state workers are controlled by the state legislature. Act 10 limits pay raises for state workers to the rate of inflation. However, even with this restriction, the state has been slow to act, resulting in what amounts to real income loss for state workers. There are several hundred skilled building trades workers, plumbers, electricians, steam fitters, and painters who work for the University of Wisconsin. Their wages have fallen as compared to workers in the private sector to the point where the university has extreme difficulty in recruiting such workers. Labor Rodeo spoke with Sue Blue, business manager of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 159, which represents electricians working for the University of Wisconsin. We asked her to describe the situation as it stands now. Yeah, well, our state workers haven't gotten a pay increase since 2019. It's been 2019 since the last increase. The IBW filed grievances with the state for both years, and they are now in the hands of the Joint Committee on Employee Relations. It's been very frustrating for our members. Basically, if any of our members retire during that time frame, they don't retroactively pay any of those members. So if anybody is left, if anybody retires, they are not part of that raise. They don't receive that. Blue emphasized that there were two issues minimal wage increases, and delay. So I think it, it is frustrating, not only the fact that the raises are very minimal, but the fact that they're delayed and delayed and delayed and not really understanding the reasoning behind it or any justification for the reasoning behind it. The result, according to Blue, is either electricians feel unappreciated and disappointed regarding the conditions of employment, which in turn has led to an overall drop-off in the ability of the UW to hire at a time of increased need. So I think it has created a situation with our workers feeling very unappreciated, very disappointed, because it used to be one of the prime positions that our members would look to get as far as employment, a job with the state. So when they did have openings, you'd have hundreds of people applying for one or two jobs. The last time, which was fairly recently, within the last month or so, that they've had a posting for an electrician, they had five people apply. The holdup in wage increases rests with Joker. 
but the union has not heard of any attempts by the UW to lobby Joker. However, the IBEW has been extremely active in this regard and is hopeful that Joker will reach a positive conclusion shortly. I think it's at the point now where many of our workers are are reevaluating being passive <laughs> about these sorts of things and and just accepting that this is the norm. So we have been told and our understanding is that uh, Joker is going to meet within the next couple of weeks that these raises are going to be approved. So we're going to do the the wait game and hold people to their word that this is what is actually going to happen. Local 159 is also looking to the future, as business manager Sue Blue explains. I think we're seeing change begin in a lot of different ways. I mean, one of my really big initiatives is to have our local represent our community and to see more women, more people of color get into the electrical trade here. And we are starting to see that. Our first year apprentice class of 39 has eight women. Labor Radio will keep you informed of developments regarding Joker, the IBW, and anticipated wage increases. Thanks to Sue Blue for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. As devastating storms hit the Midwest, stories came out about how workers were treated as danger neared. Greg Chabaski summarizes what we know now. This week's devastating windstorms and tornadoes across the Midwest left a path of death and destruction, at first seemingly due entirely to the unknowable forces of nature. As reporters dug deeper, however, it became clear that more than an unavoidable natural disaster was involved in the casualties. At two major work sites in the path of tornadoes a week ago today, on Friday, December 10th, at a candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, and in an Amazon distribution center in Edwardsville, Illinois, evidence has appeared that workers were made to continue production despite notices of approaching storms. The state of Kentucky was especially ravaged by tornadoes, and eight people, more than one in ten deaths in the state, occurred at one factory, Mayfield Consumer Products, in the devastated town of Mayfield, Kentucky. After the normal thoughts and prayers came in, social media and mainstream news began reporting another story, that workers were called in and made to stay at work to push out more of the company's scented candles in time for the holiday season. After the tornado, NBC News released reports from multiple employees that Mayfield Products ordered them to stay and work on the threat of firing, even after they asked to leave as the storm approached. A lawsuit filed yesterday on behalf of Mayfield Products workers injured at the site claims the factory had up to three and a half hours before the tornado hit its place of business to allow its employees to leave its worksite as safety precautions. The company denies the charge. In 2019, Mayfield Products was hit with a number of large fines from OSHA regarding discovered safety violations, including unclear exits. Meanwhile, in Edwardsville, Illinois, six workers died at a distribution center used by drivers for the multinational giant Amazon, owned by Jeff Bezos, who periodically trades off with Elon Musk as the world's richest man. According to a report in the independent online journal The Intercept, the company's space-age communication infrastructure did not include updates on the safety of its workers slammed by a tornado, as, according to an anonymous employee source, executives learned about the Edwardsville disaster from media reports. The Intercept posted a copy of a social media post from Larry Verdon, who was communicating with his girlfriend. I'm fueling up now. Well, I will be home after the storm. His girlfriend messaged back. What do you mean? Verdon replied. Amazon, 
won't let us leave. Verdon, who was among the six who died at the site, left four children. The distribution center was in a vast area near the Mississippi River with no underground shelter. Only seven of the more than 100 workers at the affected facility were regular Amazon employees. The rest were contractors hired on as drivers for the massive Christmas rush in the world's largest retail company. As the New York Times reported regarding Amazon's contractor arrangement, industry consultants and Amazon employees directly involved in the program have said it lets the company avoid liability for accidents and other risks, and limits labor organizing in a heavily unionized industry. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Nurses organizing at UW Hospital received the news earlier this week that a legislative analysis of Wisconsin law doesn't prevent them from bargaining with UW Health. The memo from the Nonpartisan Legislative Council says, state law is silent on union recognition. This leaves the door open for voluntary, though not mandatory, union recognition. The opinion was written at the request of State Senator Melissa Agat. Agat had been outspoken in her support of the UW Health nurses seeking union representation since they began their campaign two years ago. Nurses active in the union campaign sent copies of the legal opinion to members of the board of directors of the UW Hospital and Clinics Authority, UWHCA, in time for its monthly meeting on Thursday. Previous memos had indicated that UW Health was forbidden from formally organizing or bargaining with the union. A UW Health spokeswoman said in a statement Wednesday afternoon that the analysis seems unchanged and reiterated the health care system's intent to ignore the union. The strike at Kellogg's may be coming to an end. The union and management reached a tentative agreement yesterday covering the 1,400 striking workers at four cereal production plants. The strike by members of the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers international provides cost of living adjustments and a $1.10 per hour raise for all employees. Last week, the union overwhelmingly rejected a previous offer from the company that included 3% raises, but only some employees would have received cost-of-living adjustments. The results of the contract vote on the new agreement are expected Tuesday. Kellogg's claims most workers at its cereal plants average $120,000 last year. Union members <coughs> countered the statement by saying that they work more than 80 hours a week and those wages are only available to long-time workers. A key sticking point of the talks was the two-tiered pay system, where newer workers are paid less and receive fewer benefits and more senior staff. It was reported that the two-tier system will remain in place, however. Workers with at least four years of experience will be able to move up to the higher legacy pay level as part of this contract. The new agreement will also pre preserve employees' health care benefits. Carol Weidel reports on EEOC suit in Milwaukee charging a McDonald's franchise with racial discrimination in hiring. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, or EEOC, filed suit against the franchise operator of nine Milwaukee McDonald's fast food restaurants. The lawsuit charges Pensac Corporation for refusing to hire black applicants. Unsuccessful black applicants at the West Washington Street location in Milwaukee were told that the store manager did not like black people, the store needed Spanish people. 
This alleged conduct by the employer violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination based on race. EEOC District Director Julianne Bauman said, At the time EEOC began investigating the franchise's hiring practice, the restaurant had very few black employees. The absence of black employees was highly unlikely the result of chance. The EEOC asked that individuals who know about Penzec's hiring practice at the McDonald's on West Washington in Milwaukee contact the office. This includes individuals who believe they were not hired by the McDonald's franchise because of their race. The EEOC can be reached at this number, 414-664-3684. For Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. There was bad news yesterday on the immigration rights front. Greg Jabosky reports. Yesterday brought bad news to immigrants' rights activists on the national legislation front. The Senate parliamentarian, who had previously ruled that a pathway to citizenship could not be included in the Build Back Better legislative package before Congress, ruled late yesterday that a compromise reform, which would allow undocumented immigrants who have been in the U.S. for years to apply for five-year work visas, will also not be allowed. The Senate parliamentarian is a staff member who can be hired and fired by the Senate and whose decisions are non-binding. According to Christine Newman-Ortiz of the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights group Fosas de la Frontera, the parliamentarian's inability to fulfill her role as an impartial interpreter of Senate rules is not surprising, given her history working to deport people as a trial attorney handling immigration cases for the U.S. Department of Justice. As we have said all along, Democrats are not bound to follow her advice. They have the power to disregard her erroneous and biased opinion and pass a pathway to citizenship in the Build Back Better reconciliation budget this year. The ruling against the work visas came as a surprise to immigrants' rights activists who had just recently been promised the compromise measure by Democratic Party lawmakers. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabowski. The American Postal Workers Union, the APWU, has negotiated a new contract with the Postal Service. It still has to be ratified by union members. Keith Steffen has some of the highlights of the contract. The new APWU contract lasts three years, from September 21st, 2021, until September 20th, 2024. Some of the main features of the contract follow. There are three annual wage increases of 1.3%. Cost of living allowances, or COLAs, for career employees will be added to wages twice each year. Postal support employees, or PSEs, who are the new hires in the APWU-represented postal jobs, will get an additional $0.50 per hour. Pay scales will be adjusted to advance wage increases beyond the general raises and COLAs. PSEs will automatically be converted to career status after 24 months. Protection from layoff for career employees with at least six years of service will continue. In addition, any career employee on the rolls as of September 20th, 2021 will be included in the no layoff protections. Employees cannot be forced to transfer more than 50 miles. Juneteenth will be added to official holidays for a total of 11 paid holidays. The Postal Service will contribute 95% of the premiums for the APWU health plan. Part-time flexible employees will be guaranteed a minimum of one day off each week, except during the Christmas season. They will also be guaranteed 24 hours of work for each two-week pay period. 
They will be assured of at least four hours of work for each day that they are scheduled. There will be a number of work rule improvements, including a work environment improvement task force, a workplace free of harassment, a right of union officials to enter postal installations, a task force to address excessive overtime, and an election mail task force. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. Professional baseball players and team ownership are locked in a dispute over the terms of a new collective bargaining agreement that could affect the 2022 season. Labor Radio's Sean Hagerup has more on the state of the negotiations. Major League Baseball is in the midst of its first work stoppage in nearly 20 years. After team owners initiated a lockout against their players on the morning of December 2nd, it is the ninth work stoppage in MLB's history and the first since the 200-day strike that players undertook from August 1994 to April 1995. The league and the labor union representing players, the Major League Baseball Players Association, negotiate collective bargaining agreements on a five-year cycle, with the last CBA being ratified by players in December 2016. Players had initiated a labor dispute with the league as recently as 2020 over plans to restructure the season in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but this debate between sides did not result in a work stoppage. In negotiations for the 2021 CBA, the MLB's initial proposal looked to impose a narrower range on a team's combined salary, with an incremental luxury tax on teams beginning above $180 million combined and a mandatory minimum of $100 million combined salary. Additionally, MLB proposed free agency to begin at the age of 29 and a half instead of needing six years of major league service, along with an expanded playoff format and other adjustments to free agency. Players forced concessions over the course of three rejected tentative agreements with the league, including a change to the draft system, updates to league-wide batting rules, and an increase to minimum player salaries. Despite these wins, the players were not fully satisfied with the league's remaining proposals, especially when it came to curbing service time manipulation. Free agent signings jumped in the days before the lockout as owners scrambled to nail down contracts before contact between players and teams became prohibited. Negotiations are ongoing between the league and the MLBPA, but players aren't optimistic that a deal will be reached before the end of the year. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Madison's 23rd Fantasy in Light is on again this year from dusk to dawn at Olin Park. Labor Radio viewers Dante and Rocco reviewed the light show. Madison's 23rd Fantasy in Lights is on again this year from dusk to dawn at Olin Park. Labor Radio reviewers Dante and Rocco reviewed the light show. I'm Rocco, I guess. Well, and I am Dante. Dante and Rocco? I'm 11. You're and I am 9. And we're here at Olin Park. What do you guys see? A polar bear. Anything interesting? The Santa scheme is pretty cool. Um, And, and then the toboggan behind it. Yes, I forgot to mention it. It went through the gigantic... Oh, it seems to be a lot more things than last year. And I do remember that train being there last year, though. You can see a badger's helmet, a packer's helmet, a mallard, and then the flamingo. see a lot. There's a dinosaur pushing another one. Is there anything that really, you really like? I, 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 I like people... Um, just pushing a 
Christmas tree into their truck. You um, see a circus? Yeah, with this with the snowman there. Um, and the drums. And the plane. Yes, two of them actually. Uh, the jet oh, plane, huh? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, and one of those old rotor rotor planes. But I think yeah, we're so approaching the giant snowman blowing on a Christmas tree and then and then going backward and then going forward again. So what do you think, uh, comparing to last year, now that we've gone through most of this, what do you think? I think it's better just because the, the more lights. Yes, it seems like it's a lot, there's a lot more lights and, and it's a lot better. Do you think other kids should come and look at it? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Fantasy and Lights is a joint project of the National Electrical Contractors Association and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 159. It is open every night until January 3rd. Thanks to Dante and Rocco for their interview. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. COVID deaths have hit a new milestone. Here is Carol Weidel with this week's report. Deaths in the United States due to COVID passed the 800,000 mark this week. The Wisconsin death toll is rapidly rising, standing now at more than 9,500 confirmed deaths due to COVID. Dane County reports that a person not fully vaccinated in November was 46 times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID than a person fully vaccinated with a booster. A person vaccinated with just the initial series was only seven times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID than a person fully vaccinated with a booster. The Omicron variant has been detected in Dane County. The best protection against COVID-19, including the Omicron variant, is for people ages 5 and older to get vaccinated and people ages 16 and older to get a booster dose when eligible. The current Dane County order in effect requires wearing a mask indoors for all people age 2 and older when gathering with people that are not part of their household. Everyone age 5 and older is eligible for a vaccine in Wisconsin. Many residents are eligible for vaccine boosters, and more than 8 in every 10 eligible Dane County residents have received at least one dose of the vaccine. The nearest vaccine site can be found at this website, vaccines.gov. That's V-A-C-C-I-N-E-S dot G-O-V. When choosing a vaccine, consider this. Yesterday, the CDC endorsed updated recommendations for the prevention of COVID. These recommendations include a preference for individuals to receive the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines over Johnson & Johnson's. The messenger RNA vaccines are preferred. Sources of information for this story include Public Health Madison in Dane County, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach, Alan LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Geboski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough, Jeanine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 
2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Keith Steffen. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. <laughs> 